Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear this podcast while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio a free news and talk mobile app available right now for your smartphone. And hey, when you download Stitcher, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, it takes just a few seconds, and then when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher, where it says that, enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. The latest episode of the program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com, free of charge, available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer, and don't forget to enter the promo code OTHERPEOPLE when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is happening over here in the desert. This is happening over there, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in, uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're well. My guest today is T. Greenwood. I'm going to be talking with her in just a minute. She's written several books, uh, several novels. Her latest is called Bodies of Water. It's out there now from Kensington Press. Uh, before we begin... I thought I would remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, uh, please sign up for Other People Premium. Please do that. When you do that, you get access to every single episode. That's what premium is. Uh, you get access to every single episode, all 200 and something, what is it, 60 something? All of them, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tal Lynn, Cheryl Strait, Kate Zambrino, Scott McClanahan, Edgar Carrot, Jasmine Ward, Ben Fountain, Roxanne Gay, you name it. So uh, all of it right there. To do that, to sign up for premium, all you got to do is get the free official Other People app, and then you sign up for premium right there inside the app. It's very easy. 
and it's it's cheap. It's only two bucks a month. Or else, if that's too uh, too much, you can pay four ninety nine for six months of access, or uh, eight ninety nine for a full year, less than a dollar a month. So please sign up for premium if you can. Support the show. I would appreciate that. Also, another reminder. Uh, with this big rebranding, the launch of the new Other People website, otherppl.com. Many of you are aware of this already. Uh, the site is now featuring writing. In addition to the podcasts, there is a magazine component in addition to uh, the standard audio component. So every Wednesday, this is the plan anyway, every Wednesday, uh, new writing will be uh, will be posted. I just put up a new essay today. As a matter of fact, it's called, uh, the essay is called All of My Worries Are Average. All of My Worries Are Average. And uh, Mira Gonzalez uh, is another contributor to the site. There are only three of us. <laughs> uh, she posted something involving dick pics, penis selfies, if you will. <laughs> uh, it's a humor piece. You know, people taking pictures of their private parts and sending them to people. It happens. I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying that it happens. Mira is very funny. Uh, you can go read uh, her stuff as well over at otherppl.com. And uh, I got to say, it's been fun, you know, writing for this new site. It's been a little exhausting out of the gates, but it's been fun. I have not written publicly in a long time on any kind of regular basis, mostly because I've been working behind the scenes, you know, editorially at the nervous breakdown, uh, doing this show, being a dad, working on my various book projects when I can and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's been hard to get stuff out there online with any kind of regularity, but, uh, now I'm doing that again. I'm trying to do that and, uh, I'm trying to make it worth your while. Because, you know, here's what, here's what I find as I get older. I cannot tolerate publishing anything unless I've gone over it fanatically and made myself uh, an absolute crazy person staying up until all hours of the night. <laughs> I get anxious about it, you know, putting stuff up online quickly. You know, you worry about the writing, you worry about the uh, quality And the same goes for this show, you know, putting up uh, content, any kind of content. That's what I'm talking about. I don't want to put up shitty content. I want my content to be good. It can't, it can't be mediocre. It's got to be better than that. I have no idea. You know, and how do you know if it's mediocre? It's just, you, you just want to deliver high quality content. The internet is filled with so much static. I don't want to add to the static. I hope that makes sense. And, you know, the thing is, I put this stuff out there and, uh, you know, I'm able to do that. I'm able to let it go. But once I put it out there, uh, I never think that it's done. Or some part of me never thinks that it's done. You know, I have these deadlines. I'm on this schedule, even if it is self-imposed. But I do, uh, I, ad I adhere to it. And uh, I send my stuff you know, out into cyberspace. And then I worry that it's not right. I worry that maybe I've rushed it out the door uh, or that I've somehow failed to do my due diligence. Writing online is hard that way, especially, you know, doing it on a regular schedule. 
like, well, even once a week. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're trying to write good stuff and, and spend some time on it and revise it, it can be a little hectic. Coming up with something to say that means something. But, uh, you know, it's good for me, I think. This, uh, this little exercise, doing this again. Putting my brain out there, uh, among other uh, body parts. <laughs> but no uh, no genital selfies, nothing like that. So if you want to read uh, what I have to say, in addition to listening to me, if you just can't get enough, <laughs> if you're a glutton for punishment, then uh, please head over to otherppl.com. And uh, you can read my essays, okay? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My guest today is T. Greenwood. Her latest novel is called Bodies of Water. It's out there now from Kensington. Great to have T here. Uh, T stands for Tammy, by the way. It's great to have Tammy here. And uh, I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. I like talking with her. So here she is. This is T. Greenwood, and her latest novel, once again, is called Bodies of Water. I am in my home office in San Diego. Um, which is a purple room, sort of like a raspberry-colored room, which is a little crazy, but um, it's where I spend most of my day, and um, it may not always be this color, but it is are right you, now. Are you, are you a fan of Prince? Like, is it, what is this? I'm like, uh... <laughs> I am a fan of Prince, but that's not why my walls are purple. Yeah. I, I think my walls are... I don't know why my walls are purple, but I, I had left... We, we live in a rental, and I had... Um, not really done anything, you know, white, the white walls thing, but we've done all the other rooms. And, um, I realized I was spending like eight hours a day in a room that, you know, looked like a hospital. And, um, so I kind of went, you know, it's my room so I could do whatever I wanted to and painted it this sort of raspberry, blackberry sort of color. Okay. This fascinates me. I was just talking about this with somebody about like, uh, 
you know, it, it, I don't think we called it feng shui. Is it feng shui or feng shui? I don't even know how to pronounce it. But I don't know. Whatever I it is, we, we didn't name it that, but we were talking about spaces, like physical spaces and how they affect you emotionally and psychologically and everything. So I'm curious to know, right. like, did painting the walls that color of purple, uh, did it affect you? Like, did it change the game for you in terms of how you operate in that room? I think it did. I, like, I look forward to being in this room now. Um, it's like a really nice room and I, I, uh, did photography and so I hung up like some big pictures, um, that I'd taken black and white pictures, which really looked nice in here. And, um, yeah, I mean, color is important. And I think, you know, being in that sort of clinical setting that I was in before was not helping anything. Um, I actually just was at the Tucson Festival of Books and, um, Alice Hoffman was on a panel and she was saying that every, this is a long time ago. She has like 30 books or something that she's written, but she was saying that it used to be that every time she wrote a new book, she would paint her office, like to match the colors of the book, not the book jacket, but like the colors of the book. And then her husband gets sick of helping her paint her office. (laughs) And so she stopped, but um, yeah, it was crazy. She said at one point she had a book that was set in the fall, in the fall and had painted the walls, like, you know, pumpkin color and, See, that, 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 sound, that sounds crazy, but at the same time, it makes perfect sense. Like it's, it's uh, kind of awesome. Yeah, it probably probably worked. <laughs> you know, getting your because yeah. I feel like you know you can do similar things when you're writing uh, when you're writing to help the process along with music. Like if you're working in a yeah. very uh, melancholy vein or something, you know, certain music will help set the tone for the work, and you kind of go back to it. And I've talked to writers uh, who have listened to the same album or even the same song on repeat for the entire composition of a book, which I think I did that. I did that with my first novel and it was, uh, it was like, it had no, you know, no tie in with the subject matter or anything, but I, I would, it would like signal something for me. You know, I would put my headphones on and play the one album and, and it would like put me in to the book where I needed to be. It was very, it was like, um, sort of Pavlovian sort of yeah. response that I had to the music, which was, yeah, you know, but that was really the only time I've ever done that. What was the album? It was a gospel album of all things, um, and I, I love gospel music, but I don't listen to it, you know, regularly. Um, but it was something that I had gotten a hold of somewhere, and I don't know, there was just something very sort of hypnotic about it, um, and it just allowed me to kind of go where I needed to be. I we were living um, at the beach at the time, and a really in one of those you know those apartment complexes that in. Um, in Southern California that have like, they almost look like old motels, you know, so the doors open and, um, and there's a little balcony that runs the whole length of the complex and everybody would leave their doors open and people would just kind of wander in and out of our house. And it was a tiny little apartment. And so I was trying to write books, you know, and I had no place to write. I had like a little counter and that's where my monitor, it was, you know, back in the days of giant monitors. So I had this giant monitor and I would write with the keyboard in my lap and like, people wouldn't leave me alone if I put the headphones on. So I would just put headphones on and sit there and, and work. <laughs> and, and listen to gospel music. I listen to, listen to gospel music, naturally. So <laughs> were you, no, did, did, I miss, did I miss it earlier? Were you writing standing up? Um, no, I was sitting in a probably really uncomfortable chair, but um, uh, sitting with the keyboard on my lap because it was like a weird counter thing that just sort of jutted out into our living room. This is a strange apartment, um, and uh, and so there was only space on the counter for my monitor because <laughs> it was a giant monitor. Okay, yeah, no, because I'm I'm always fascinated by writer spaces, and I'm, I can be covetous. Like I was reading this uh, 
New Yorker profile of Lydia Davis from a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that, but I didn't. I didn't. Uh, they're talking about how like she and her husband live in I think it's upstate New York, somewhere like northeast and like upstatey, and uh, she they like live in like in an old like nineteenth century or early twentieth century elementary school. Like they renovated it. Oh, cool! So like the gym, and he's a visual artist. So like the gymnasium is his studio, and she has this crazy beautiful space, and you know. Uh, it's just like disgusting. You're like, oh my god. That's that's awesome. I, I yeah, I'm covetous too. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the thing is, though, maybe great. maybe you wouldn't like. I, you know, it's always fun to dream about having like an ocean view and some beautiful like yeah. loft space. But if it's too beautiful and comfortable, maybe that's detrimental to getting work done. Like maybe you need to. Suffer. It totally is. It totally is. We moved from that apartment. I mean, literally, the apartment was maybe 400 square feet, and we moved from that into a, not. A much larger, but like twice the size two-bedroom apartment, and suddenly I had a whole room as an office, and I didn't write a word in there. We lived there for a couple of years. I didn't write a word, um, and I'd written three novels at that counter, you know, so I think um, there's a fine line. Like, at this point now, I can write wherever I need to write, and I think having kids does that too, you know, but back in the day, you know, I used to sort of think, you know, I had to have this perfect, beautiful, you know, place to write or or else I wouldn't be able to be inspired or whatever. And, um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta (laughs) lose that. You gotta lose that. And if you can't lose it on your own, then kids will wring it out of you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So what do you do? I mean, like, cause you have what, two kids? I want to say two kids. Um, they are uh, daughters. Um, one is 10 and one is 12. So they're at this like wonderful, independent age, but I still know where they are every minute of every day kind of thing, you know, Um, we call it the golden years of childhood where, you know, they can take care of themselves. They, they don't get up super early anymore. They're smart. They play together, but they're also not so, you know, independent that they're like, that I'm worrying about them, you know, which is good. They're not a few more years. They're not like drag racing with like teenage boys and whatnot. Not yet. (laughs) Not yet. Uh, yeah, I have a daughter, so I'm like, and she's three, so it's like just like pure, uh, it's like just pure sweetness right now, and it's like you you look at yeah. them, you look at them at this age, and you go, okay, so this is going to change. Like you got to just like really yeah. appreciate, like because it's it's like living with an angel or something. I mean, not that she's always, not that she's always uh, in a great mood, but uh, there's just like this unbelievable innocence and sweetness, and you just kind of want to bottle it. Yeah, and you'll miss that too, and you'll. Be, have always have nostalgia for that. I think you know. I find myself wrecked with nostalgia pretty much daily. You know, with every passing day. Awesome! I can't wait for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. <laughs> you know, like oh, I'm, I'm never going to get those days back. Those beautiful, that beautiful sweetness is gone from my life forever. <laughs> They're sweet, just in in smaller doses. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, <laughs> so what about like you know going through this? process creatively where you get better at writing and you get more efficient with your time. And, uh, I heard you mention that you can kind of write now, uh, at this point in your life, anywhere, any, in any kind of like pocket of time that you have, like, what is your, yeah. ri- what does your writing ritual look like? Cause I imagine you're busy, you know, you've got, um, a, a schedule that probably fluctuates and you, yeah. par- so what, what do you do? Um, I'm a morning writer. I, I have been for a long time now and it started when the kids were little and I had to sort of get up and get the writing done before they did, but it's stuck. And so even though they need me less, I still find that, you know, it's that training again, you know, it's just habitual. Um, and I think 
my best, most productive time is like 5, 5.30 in the morning until like 7.30. And that's pretty much when I write. Um, I teach a lot and I um, do a lot of freelance editing, you know, and then I'm, I'm a mom, so I'm constantly doing stuff with school and, you know, and with the kids. And um, so I, I found that doing it first, you know, making it sort of the first thing on the to-do list or like the top priority of the day um, and just knocking it out early on then liberates me from any sort of guilt I might have <laughs> for the rest of the day. And, and then I can think about it. You know, I, I, my students ask, you know, like, well, when do you write? When only write two hours a day? I'm like, I write two hours, but I think about what I'm working on 24 hours. You know, I mean, I'm always thinking about what I'm working on. It's just that the real hard work of writing for me happens before anybody else is awake in the house. Okay. Um, and, and you must just get right down to business. Like if you're waking up at five, like, are you caffeinated? Yeah. Are, are you? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I have to, I have to. And I, um, we had one of those curry, um, coffee makers, which was the best. And it totally blew out like a few months ago. And we just got this crappy like replacement thing. And so I actually have to physically like make and wait for the coffee, which has been difficult, but, um, yeah, I, I caffeinate and, um, I usually, you know, I'll wake up like maybe a half an hour before I get up. And that's when I start working through the problems. Of, you know the writing problems that I'm, I know I'm, I'm going to be facing, um, and so that by the time I sit down, I'm kind of already in that in that place, you know, in that sort of. But you, know, you, you, you know, you don't like dick around on the internet or get sucked into email. You avoid all that. I try not to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll glance at email. I won't answer anything. I'll glance to see if there's anything important, Facebook, whatever. But I don't. I I try to avoid all of that stuff until after I'm done. I mean, when you finish you know, working at seven thirty in the morning, there's still plenty of time for that. You're done with your work day at seven thirty. <laughs> you have the, re- time for hey, the rest of the day for Facebook. That's wonderful. So Exactly. Um how many words are you getting? I mean, can you estimate like when you're working for two hours at a pop, like are you consistent in your output? Uh are you really yeah. like, are you are you really fast? You know what I'm saying? Do you get words on the page quickly and then edit later? I, I- when I'm in the middle of a book, I do. Um, like right now, I'm, I had done um, NaNoWriMo in November and um, wrote a really bad draft of a book. Um, and I've kind of just been thinking now about whether I'm going to work on revising that or start another one. And um, so I'm kind of in a non-writing mode right now. And I actually just finished the edits for um, a book that comes out next year. I'm, I'm kind of on a, like a yearly schedule now contract wise. And so, um, I, there's a rhythm to things and I, I tend to write a lot in the fall. So that's when I'm getting up and, you know, it's a couple thousand words a day consistently until the book is uh, like a draft is done. And then in two revising, hours. In two, I don't wait, want, yeah, do, that's good. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm fairly prolific. Um, it's, you know, but I spend a lot of time revising. I like to write my first drafts very rapidly sort of, just diving in, holding my breath until I'm done and then coming up for air. And um, and uh, and then the revision process is much more sort of analytical and slow and tedious and, you know, um, not the fun part of writing for me. I love the, you know, the wild drafting phase, you know, the, the early early well, part of the process. Well, and you mentioned uh, NaNoWriMo earlier. Most of my listeners probably know what that is, but that's what, you write a novel in a month? Yeah, it's um, it, it's been going on for I think maybe ten years, something maybe more than that. Um, uh, and it's you register with this website, and and the whole 
plan is that you write a book from start to finish that's 50,000 words, which is about 200 pages, um, in the month of November, which is crazy. <laughs> you know, with, with, you know, we do Thanksgiving at our house. One of my daughters has a birthday in November. It's always like the most ridiculous time. When I was teaching, it was always like, you know, crazy grading time, um, teaching at university. And, um, and, uh, but I do it like every year I do it. And that's when I, most of my, most of my books, um, lately have been drafted or at least really worked on extensively during the month of November. And then I revise my winter. And so like, what's the, how do you have accountability? I've never done it. Like, what do you, like, you just, do you have like, people, you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't. I mean, I, I have this weird thing that I do with some writer friends where if we're working on a project and especially, you know, friends who are doing NaNoWriMo simultaneously, we'll post our word counts on Facebook and it becomes this like weirdly competitive <laughs> thing, you know, and I, there's a bit of accountability and you feel, you know, you feel bad if you, if you flake out and, um, I actually, this wasn't during NaNoWriMo, but um, one of the smartest things I ever did was um, I had a student um, when I was teaching at George Washington University, and she said, I really want to write a novel. Let's just, will you, you know, will you do this with me? And I said, sure. We'll just check in with each other on Facebook every morning, you know, instant message each other, let let the other know that they're up, and, and write for a couple hours, and then check back in with the word count. And, um, she, she, of course, kind of, you know, stopped and, and I, and she didn't show up several mornings, but there was always the distinct possibility that she would be there. So I had to, you know, I had to get up and do it. And, um, it was great. I wrote a book, you know, in like six weeks, uh, waiting, waiting for her to check in with me. And you got, and you got, did you get, I mean, you get 50,000 exactly. And like, what does this thing look like? I mean, how messy is your, how messy are your oh, messy. messes? Messy. Messy. You know, actually, I, I, that's not true. It depends on the book. Um, this last one I did is horrible. I mean, it's. It, I, I feel like it was just like a weird exercise, and now I can go back and write the, the book that I need to write because I've done this. Um, but Bodies of Water, which is the book that just came out, um, I wrote during NaNoWriMo, and it really didn't change tons. It it got fleshed out and filled out a bit, but it was the the bones were pretty, pretty stay pretty much the same. And so, where do you get your ideas? Like, I mean, obviously, you go into NaNoWriMo and you you hit the ground running. You kind of have to, but like, are you just making these right. things? Are you making these things up on the fly, or do you have? No, no. I I usually think about a book for a long time before I start writing it. Um, you know, anywhere from months to years, and um, bodies of water. I had uh, I thought about all summer, pretty much all summer, and a little bit of the fall, and um, so that by the and I had thought about the characters and written about the characters, um, so that when I sat down to write it, it felt like the world already existed, you know, and right. I just had to sort of go in and capture it and get it down on paper. So you taken? Are you like? Are you outlining? Are you taking? You said you're doing character sketch work before you sit down to write the actual fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I don't outline. Um, I uh, I start with I usually start with characters and situation, um, and and then the rest is pretty open. Sometimes I'll have an idea of what sort of the you know the climactic scene will be or how the end what the end will look like, um, but it's it's pretty nebulous. Other than just having characters who have a particular problem, you know, or an image of characters in a in a specific situation and. Um, you know, I, I, I've tried to write with outlines and it just, 
really spoils things for me. I, I lose interest. You know, if I already know and have written down everything that's going to happen, it almost takes away the the need to write it down, you know? So how visual is the process of writing for you? Like if you have these characters in mind, I'm assuming you have some idea of what they look like, and then you sit down to write the fiction, like... Uh, I, you know, it seems like a, a lot of fiction writing when it's, especially when it's going well is kind of like watching a mental movie. It's a very visual process. Uh, or are you hearing it? You know what I'm saying? I guess it might be different for different writers. Yeah, I, I definitely, I'm, I'm a visual writer. Um, I'm a visual person and, and so it does, it sort of plays itself out, you know, in a filmic sort of way. Um, but I also have to hear the voice of the narrator and, um, I was just talking about this with somebody, like the first line or the first paragraph rarely, rarely changes much, you know, because I have to hear that. I have to hear the voice that's telling the story um, before I, before I'll go very far. And so figuring what that, figuring out what that is is probably the first thing, you know, hearing, hearing how the story opens, how it's going to be narrated um, is, is first. So that's, I guess, auditory. And then, and then it's just envisioning, envisioning everything, envisioning the characters. I like to keep, um, I keep Pinterest boards as I'm writing with just images that evoke the mood of the book, look like the characters in the book, the settings, you know, just details about the story. So I have, I have, and that's just, just a really good way to procrastinate as well. But I was going to say know, that sounds, I got to, I got to get on that. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really fun. And, you know, and I'll, I'll have other writer friends that will, will like, share our Pinterest boards. And it's fun. It's, it's, it's kind of, you know, I, I used to do the same thing with notebooks. You know, I would just glue pictures in and, you know, and things like that into notebooks when I was working on, on novels before, you know, pre-internet. Yeah, but, that's, yeah, but that sounds like a smart way to use Pinterest. Yeah, and I'm not. I don't think it's something that you know I came up with. I think it's probably something that a lot of people have done. But it's um, a lot of authors. A lot of authors do that. I think so. I think so. I mean, I know I have you know probably four or five friends who actively do this. That's fascinating, and I think it's also fascinating from like a literary history standpoint or like a literary biography standpoint. That like you know in in the future, you know, you a, a biographer might be looking back on a writer from this time and. You know, there, there there are all these like Pinterest boards that form. Kind yeah. of like a, they, they form kind of like the DNA of a novel or something. Or yeah, I think it's cool. I mean, it's it's you know, and it does. I it's um, it's a fun place to go when you're dreaming up the world of your of your story. You know, and and you don't feel like writing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Happens, well, but, but no, okay, but like we talked about the visual component. You mentioned earlier that you're uh, into photography and that you hung some you know some photographs on the wall of your study or whatever. Um, you know, if you have an interest in the visual arts or you have an interest in any other art besides writing and literature, uh, do yes. you find that like the, the work that you do in photography and the love that you have for that particular visual art form uh, somehow informs in a really explicit way the writing work? I think, you know, I think they come, the impulse comes from the same place. It's, um, you know, and I, I take pictures. I started taking pictures I, I always loved photography. I took photography in college, and I grew up, my dad had a dark room in our basement when I was a kid, and he went through a phase where he was photographing, you know, all sorts of things all the time. Um, and and then I went to college, and I, you know, learned a little bit. I took, like, one semester's worth of photography, and 
Um, and then, of course, you know, it's expensive. And, like, I couldn't, you know, I, I had no access to darkroom or whatever. And I gave it up for a while. I mean, I still took pictures, but I had crappy point-and-shoot cameras and, and things. And then um, when my kids were, let me see, probably, like, three, you know, like a, when the little one was, like, three and the older one was five, um, I got myself a really nice digital, you know, a DSLR camera and started really, really focusing on um, taking pictures of them. Right. Um, I don't know if you know Sally Mann. Yeah, sure. The photographer, yeah. I, Just I mean, kids, 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 smoking, kids yeah. smoking cigarettes. That's what kids smoking <laughs> cigarettes and, you know, um, I, I – and I loved her before I had children and after I had kids, I could just see, I could see where she was coming from in terms of wanting to capture these really fleeting moments of time, you know, uh, in a really raw and honest way. And, um, and so I, I started taking pictures of the girls at, at that age and they're also at this very self-conscious, I mean, um, I'm self-conscious place when they're little like that, you know, and, and they got used to me just, taking pictures of them and um but the impulse to go, kind of get back to my point but the impulse was to, to capture things and I think in a way you know I write to do that too I you know even my though my books are not autobiographical they're all you know different subjects and different characters um it still sort of captures moments of my life you know and um the things that I care about at a certain time and um, you know, it's what like, the world looks like to me, you know, at certain, certain times in my life. It's like a tattoo. It's like a, it's like a psycho spiritual tattoo or something. I've, exactly. I, I've had conversations about tattoos cause I don't have tattoos and I'm, I'm I can't, uh-huh. I'm not a person who can do the tattoo cause I can, I can't decide which tattoo to get. But then I had a person right. explain to me that it's just like a timestamp. It's like, this is me at this point in my life. And you don't have regrets. Like even if like you were in, you don't, you don't, I have, I have tattoos and I got them all within a very short period of time. Um, about when I was like 23 and it's same thing, you know, they're, I mean, they're not fabulous tattoos, but they're, they're, they were who I was at that time of my life, you know, and, um, I don't regret them. What are your, what are your tattoos? Are they, are there any like really bad ones or are they pretty decent? No, no. Um, there, there a couple are just design sort of things. And then, um, I have on my ankle, um, it's a line from an E.E. Cummings poem that, uh, is, uh, I typed on an antique type. I collect antique typewriters and I, I had typed it using one of the typewriters and then so it's the typeset, um, you know, that the, the, the font is, Type from the typewriter. Is it all? Um, and it's all lowercase. As you get older, things sort of bleed and blend. <laughs> but is it, um, is it all lower? Know? Is it all lowercase? Isn't that like e e All lowercase. Yeah. Well, see, lower that, that seems tasteful. Like I have a friend. Uh, one of my friends growing up, like she got like a Grateful Dead dancing bear. Uh, fortunate, right. Fortunately, like on her uh, backside, which I guess you know it's better than, <laughs> better better than having it somewhere like like fully visible, but. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I've seen even worse tattoos, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. And so. Oh, yeah. And the misspelled ones, those are the, those are the absolute <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, mean, I think there's a whole, like, website dedicated to misspelled, misspelled tattoos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, your name, before I let it slip my mind, I want to ask you about it. T. Greenwood. Um, what the, the T is for Tammy. Okay, so um, we've got that established, but I want to know why uh, when you went to publish, you decided to just go with the T. Is this like a gender-related right. thing? You didn't want people to know your gender, or I guess your your author photo kind of gives it away, but 
Right, right. And, you know, it's funny, this is the first question I get asked almost every time I do a reading or anything. And um, I, I always find it interesting that people are interested. Um, and basically, I mean, the absolute honest truth is that when I first published, I was I was 28 when I sold my first book. And uh, I wanted to be taken seriously. And Tammy is not a nickname for anything. It's just, it's, that's my name. And um, I didn't think it sounded as writerly as using an initial. Um, and I also did like the idea of, you know, not having immediate associations with the name. Um, you know, I think my whole writing career has been spent sort of battling the idea of, you know, what it means to be a female writer and how you're going to be perceived and how your books are going to be perceived and all the packaging that happens with women writers' work. Um, you know, it's just an uphill battle all the time um, to be taken seriously. And um, and so it started there, and um, and then it just sort of stuck. I mean, I, I my legal name is actually a hyphenated name now after I got married, and um, but I just kept it because I felt like, you know, I wanted it to be consistent as well. And the other thing is, <laughs> when you write out Tammy Greenwood, there are three sets of double letters, so it's actually a really long name. <laughs> so it would actually take up a lot of space on a on a book jacket as well. Yeah, well, the T Greenwood's memorable, and I can relate because my name is Brad, and I, I think that Brad is like the least literary sounding name out there. <laughs> I have a I have a no, long, well, and- I have a long history of like self loathing for my own first name. But I've, so funny. I, See, and I don't mind Tammy as a name. I mean, it's my name. It's it's you know, and and when people ask, should I call you T? You know, and I say, no, my name is my name is Tammy. I just you don't want to give any anybody another reason to not pick up your book, you know, and um, and they think, oh, that sounds like a girly name, or right. Know, well, that's the thing. I mean, don't you think um, though, Brad doesn't? What authors are named Brad? It's like Bradford. Like maybe that's like a more like uh, literary sounding name. Is that, Brad short for anything? No. It's not. It's and not. It, yeah, so you're in the same situation. There's no, yeah. What author is named Brad? I'm like the only one. I, I, <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's, it's awful. It's, I don't you know. You may be the only one, which could be great. But I have, I have this theory, and like this is kind of off topic, but it's related. Like, and, it, and you know what? It applies to literature as well. I can <laughs> often tell whether or not someone's going to be successful at what they do based on their name. And mm. it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a superstition rooted in, I think, the insecurity that I just talked about. But like when I'm, <laughs> like, I'm a sports fan. And so, like, you know, when there's, like, a draft for, like, football where they're drafting players, I'll look at a, right. player, I'll look at a player's name and go, like, that guy's going to be good. And then I'll be like, there's no, yeah. way, there's no way that guy's going to be a good player because his name is such and such. Like, I put too much right. – am I putting too much stock in this? Like, I don't know. No, no, I don't think so. And you were probably conscious of that when you named your daughter, right? And did you think she, about that? Yeah, no, for sure. I yeah. mean, I, I wanted it – I mean, I think as a writer, like – um, you know, A, you want to pick like a decent name. I hope we picked a decent <laughs> name. <laughs> and uh, and then B, like a lot of it to me is phonetics. Like you want it to be easy to say. You don't want to have, right. you know, some sort of unfortunate rhyme or some sort of, un, you know, right. some unfortunate correlation with like uh, some part of the anatomy or, you know what I'm saying? Like you don't want right, to, right, right, right. You don't want to curse the kid. But a lot of it for me is just phonetics, you know, and, and how it rolls yeah. off the tongue and, and how, yeah. you know, and how, you know, the name will, how you grow into the name and. You know, I don't mean to bag on my parents either. You know, they tried their best with my name. I, it's not the worst name yeah. in the world, but it's just, I, I don't know. I feel like... I don't, yeah, I don't, Brad doesn't strike me as a, as a bad name. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like it's... I, yeah. I've, I've talked about this on the show before, so I don't want to go into my big spiel, but I feel like it's <laughs> it's got a... It's culturally loaded. Like, the name Brad is used in our culture mm-hmm. in, like, in narrative to signify, yeah. like, a, like a, a dumbass or a douchebag. <laughs> and, like... <laughs> 
if you if you if you pay attention to movies and film and television, you know, you'll see what I'm talking about. It's true, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I can know. I can see that. I, I get it. <laughs> yeah. So anyhow, um, I guess like the next question uh, to ask you is. Uh, where you come from? You know, you you mentioned earlier that your dad had a dark room in the basement. Like, wh- where was that basement, or where was that? Where was that basement? Yeah. Um, I grew up in rural Vermont, um, in the northeast corner of Vermont, in a really small town. Um, I was born in St. Johnsbury, Vermont, and then um, lived for a short time in a really tiny, tiny town called Concord, and then spent um, from fourth grade until uh, I graduated from high school in Lindenville, Vermont. Um, and, uh, from there I went to the University of Vermont. Um, so I, I spent the first 23 years of my life in Vermont. And, Vermont, Vermont um, seems had, like paradise to me. Is it, is it as idyllic as I'm imagining it? I guess probably not. You know, I, I think there's, there's a perception of what Vermont is that is based on, you know, movies and calendars and, you know, um, and, and sort of this a very glossy version of Vermont, but Vermont is, um, you know, at least in the, where I grew up is a pretty economically depressed, um, place. And, um, it's a harsh place. It's a really harsh place to, to live. Um, you know, just the weather is unbelievably brutal. Um, and there's, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough place to be. I, I didn't appreciate it at all until I grew up. Um, and now I look back and I had a very idyllic childhood. I really did. I had freedom. I had, you know, just, I, I always felt safe. I was allowed to just, you know, play in the woods and, and roam free and, you know, ride my bike by myself, you know, for miles and miles and miles. And, um, and it, so it took being, you know, it took leaving as it does, you know, a lot of places to really understand what I had, um, you know, but I, I, I see, I see it through, you know, adult eyes now. And, um, we actually, I drive from San Diego to, I'm sorry, I can just my call waiting. Um, I drive from, um, San Diego to Vermont with my daughters every year and we spend the month of August, um, in, uh, at our like family's summer we call it camp there, but it's, you know, it's like a really rustic cabin that's on a pond. So and, wait, uh, you drive the whole way? You go cross country? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of lunacy, yeah. <laughs> but um, we're, it's so remote that it would be ridiculous to try to rent a car for a month. Um, there are no car rental places for one thing. So we'd have to get the car in like Hartford or Boston or something and, and, um, and drive up and, um, and, you know, we need a car once we're there. And so we just, we just do it and we've done it. Um, we were living back East when the kids were really little in DC. And, um, after we moved back to San Diego, um, we just kept making the trip. And so it's, it's a little crazy, but it's worth it. And then, you know, the kids get to have this sort of same for, you know, for months every year, they get to have the same wonderful sort of childhood that I had as a kid. It's great up there in August too. I mean, that's the month to be there. Yeah, it is. I wish we could go in the fall, but you know, with school, you can't do that. But like August, September, October are awesome. And, um, the rest of the year is really hard. (laughs) And the other nine, (laughs) the other nine months are living hell. Yeah, it's really, really, I mean, it's really cold. I, I was telling my kids, you know, they complain. They're such California girls, and they were complaining about 
it being, you know, like 55 or something. I mean, today it's cold and raining. And I'm like, I used to ski race in high school. And I remember there being a race where the wind chill at the top of the mountain was 85 below. And we were racing without our jackets to start, you know, our ski sweaters and our, our bibs, our numbers. And just feeling like I was going to die. <laughs> My God. Yeah, that's, I mean, I grew, yeah. up, in, I grew up in Milwaukee. So, I, and, you know, I remember I that. I that cold then. Yeah, yeah, I've been I've been cold, but I live I've lived in California. I've you know lived in Southern California for a long time, and it and it does turn yeah. it turns you. Like I feel like I've lost yeah. some of my toughness. Yeah, uh, oh, like it's cold today. I was I, I, I'm I'm wearing a wool sweater right now, and people you know, I, people listening back east are <laughs> pissed off at us right now. <laughs> I know, uh, I know, a, especially in Vermont, it's like snowing. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been snowing since like. August. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but it is a weird thing. It's a, it's a truly strange thing to not have to really consider the weather as like a thing in your life. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't ever play a role. Like it, it's never never anything to concern yourself with, and right. that is such a strange thing. Yeah. It, it really is. When we left San Diego to move to DC, my husband got a job in DC in two thousand five. Um, when we, when we left here, I realized that the kids didn't own socks, <laughs> you know, I was like, I have to go buy socks for the kids. And I was like, I really don't have shoes either, <laughs> Not wear, you know, in like January. And then I realized my only shoes were flip-flops, you know, so yeah. Did you, did you miss San Diego? Did you miss it when you left? Oh, terribly, terribly. Yeah. Yeah. DC was not for me. I mean, we made some really great friends there, but as a as a place for me to to live for any length of time, it, it just it was not my speed. <laughs> Wasn't a thing. So uh, a little bit more about Vermont. Like you grew up in this really small town. Like what were you, what did your parents do? Your dad was a was he an artsy fellow he, with the photography? No, um, no. He well, he yeah. I mean, I think both my parents were very artistic, but they didn't work. You know, they they weren't artists. They um, my dad uh, was a uh, vice president of a nonprofit organization that helped small businesses get started. Um, and my mom was home with us. Um, she went to nursing school when I was um, in middle school, and she uh, worked as a nurse for a few years, um, and then and then ended up coming and staying home again, but, um, they were, you know, we were just average, average family. Um, um, my, um, my grandfather was a writer, a poet, but he also worked, he had a, you know, professional job, but he was sort of self-educated and, um, and he was really sort of the first person to, you know, encourage, encourage my writing, um, and say, you know, this is something special and this is something, this is something that, you know, is, is something you should pursue and, and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think I have a lot of really creative people in my family, but not that many who have made it their careers. And so, and, and it is your career. I mean, like you said, you were under contract, you've written what, eight novels. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. so um, you make it's taken I mean, a long time. I mean, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of ridiculous jobs to support my writing life a lot. <laughs> Yeah, ridiculous. Well, sure, but, um, but are you at the point now where like the book sales like give you some kind of living? Because it, it's a very rare. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. I do. I mean, I, I, you know, like I said, I teach, um, but it's I'm not. I don't have a full time faculty position or anything. I, um, I teach for San Diego Writers Inc., which is like an adult, you know, workshops and classes. Um, I teach online for the Writers Center in Bethesda, where I used to teach in person and. Um, I do some freelance editing, but I mostly I mostly write. I'm you know um, I'm not having to 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 do anything that's not somehow related to writing um, 
for a living, which is such a treat. I mean, it's, you know, it's taken a long time to get to that place, but it's good to be there. There you are. And so, uh, when you yeah. were growing up, like how early, you know, your, if your grandfather saw this in you, what, when you were in high school or? No, I was really young when I started writing and I mean, I was a, you know, really voracious reader. And I think part of that was just that, you know, we, when I was really young, before uh, we adopted my sister when I was seven. So I was like an only child till I was seven. And um, we lived out in the middle of nowhere and um, really, really tiny town when I was young. And um, I just read, I read to entertain myself and my mom would take me to the library and my grandfather would take me to, you know, we would spend like entire days at bookstores and um, they lived in a town up near the Canadian border that had two bookstores and a library and we would spend like entire days at the library. And so it was just sort of a really natural progression to go from writing, uh, from reading to writing. I started writing for, for fun when I was like in the second, third grade and had teachers. And I, you know, I really, I, I think about this now with my kids. It's like, I still remember specific things that teachers said to me about my writing. And I don't know that I would have, you know, I would have leaned that way if I had not had this sort of constant encouragement along the way by, you know, the it's people funny. I admire. I got to stop you there because I can't tell you how many times I've had that particular thing said on this show. I've said it myself, but um, yeah. it needs to be repeated. I think like how important teachers, what a role like adults in our lives, but I think specifically teachers because they're the ones who usually spot it because they're reading your work when you're a youngster. Uh, oh, totally. I just, said, I, mean, the, I, I, I just I, said the word youngster. That makes me sound old. But, youngster. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your rocking chair? Yeah. Your shotgun. <laughs> um, I, um, I had a teacher. I mean, I've had so many. I had so many teachers that I can pinpoint, like, things that I wrote and things that they said to me, you know. And um, and my memory is not fabulous when it, when it comes to certain things, but I remember distinctly, you know, things that were said. Um, and I had a high school English teacher, because I thought I was going to be a doctor. I actually had it in my head for probably from sixth grade to 10th grade that I was going to go to, um, you know, be pre-med major and become a doctor. And, and, um, I had a high school English teacher and after I'd written something, he wrote on it, he said, you know, you need to be a writer. This is, this is what, this is what you're supposed to be doing. And, you know, I hope you'll lovingly autograph your books in the future or whatever. And I saved that letter and I knew at the time that that meant something and I saved it. And when my first book came out, I copied the letter and put it in the book and sent it to him Aww. because it made such a huge, I mean, it really, it turned, I mean, I, I'd be like, you know, I'd be in a hospital or something like, you know, working, <laughs> working crazy, awful shifts, you know, yeah. and like changing catheter um, to and saving lives, you yeah. know, or, yeah, or saving lives. <laughs> or <I> saving was... <laughs> lives. <laughs> Um, wow. So, and then it sounds like you had your, your shit together as a kid. Like you were pretty studious, good kid. Uh, yeah. like did you went to the university of Vermont? Did you ever like hippie out or do anything crazy in college or? Well, not, nothing any crazier than anybody else did, but you know, I, I was in college in the late eighties and, um, I graduated in 91 and, um, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't do anything too crazy. I was really studious. I was very, I've always been very, very driven, um, which I think you kind of have to be in order to make it as a writer. You have to be sort of ridiculously tenacious and where does stubborn. It come, where does it come from? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, I just am sort of innately, you know, kind of, 
not competitive, but very driven, very like, I want to do well. I want to, you know, I want to make good things. I want you know, I, I want to succeed at whatever it is I set out to do. I, my dad always teases me. He's going to listen to this. He's like, oh my God. Um, I used to dance when I was a kid and I remember going to this dance competition and um, I came in second and his, he loves to tell the story how I cried and cried because I came in second place, you know, and so I think I just, I've just always wanted, if I was going to do something, I was going to be the best at it, you know, that I was going to do it to the best of my ability. And, and I don't think writing is any different. And, you know, right. um, it's probably a horrible way to live your life. But, you know, <laughs> seems to be working out. It, well, there, I mean, there's, you know, I, I have, I definitely have friends who are extremely talented writers who, um, you know, just aren't as stubborn, just aren't as, you know, sort of like willing to get knocked down again and again and again and again, you know, and who've gone on and, you know, made careers doing other things because it's hard. It's really, it's really freaking hard to, to, to make this work, you know, and, and to make what you love to do become something that you can actually support yourself doing. That's right. Have, have you ever, uh, did you ever consider quitting? You ever come close? No. I mean, I've had some, I've definitely, I mean, I've been publishing now for 15 years and I've definitely had some serious ups and downs. There were seven years between my third and my fourth book and those were hard years. I mean, the kids were little, I was, I wasn't writing any less, but I was not publishing and it was, it was really hard. Um, Wait, you said you weren't writing any less or you weren't writing at all? I wasn't writing any less. I was still writing just as much. I just wasn't publishing and, um, right. You just wasn't as good. I don't know. I mean, I, I spent five years writing my fourth novel, but I'd written a, I'd written a novel that was terrible, you know, and I'd spent time doing that. And then I wrote a book that um, the sales of my first three books were pretty atrocious. And um, the, you know, the reviews were good. The, you know, that was critically, they were critically um, successful, but, you know, they didn't sell. They just didn't sell. And so when I was attempting to get my fourth novel published, it was nearly impossible to find a publisher. Um, I mean, it was just a, a rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection. And, and and I, you know, I knew it wasn't the book. I knew it wasn't the book. I knew it was, you know, that that miserable sales record. And um, and I I because I believed in the book, I couldn't, I couldn't quit. It would so, have been tempting. So what happened? You know? What, what broke, what broke you through? Like to the point where you, um, actually it was a really kind of a wild story. I had left my agent who, um, rep- represented my first three books and, um, and I found a new agent and he had no luck selling, selling the book. And, um, I had, I'd been keeping a blog, um, for several years and sort of very honestly, <laughs> sort of laying out, you know, how things were going or not going um, with my writing and parenting and stuff. And um, and um, this guy contacted me and said, hey, you know, and he was somebody, he was a reader, and he had been working at an agency for a while, and, um, and then he, you know, I knew he was a fan of my work, and he said, listen, um, I'm an editor now, an assistant editor, I think at the time, um, at Kensington Books, and would you be willing to send it to me? I was like, I have nothing to lose here, you know, why not? And um and Kensington is um, you know, they're they're known, they're bread and butter, you know, they're they're a publisher that does a lot of genre stuff. 
And um, but they're one of the largest, if not the largest, independent um, publisher in New York. And um, and so it was a different model than what I was used to. I'd been with St. Martin's before, and um, it was just a different model. They were going to do um, uh, uh, trade paperback, original, live as in the hardcover, and you know, that sort of thing. And, and this was in 2008, so you know that that wasn't as common. And um, but they ended up being wonderful to me. They bought they they bought that book that I'd been unable to to find a publisher for. Which one was that? And, um, Two Rivers. Okay. And um, that's actually been probably the best selling of all of the books. Um, if you look at you know cumulatively, I I think and um, and they gave me a two book contract with that, and then they bought my entire backlist, which had been all of it had gone out of print. So um, they've just been really wonderful. And they make these beautiful, you know, they make beautiful books. And um, it's been very great. And they're just, they're, they're so, um, they're so good at getting the books distributed, you know, which is something that it's, you don't think about it until you're like, wow, you know, this is in Costco. And what you mean? Okay. So you mean like, yeah, getting it into retail, but then also like store placement. Getting it retail, yeah. Yeah, you know, and um, and they just they're good at that, and and so it's it's exciting to sort of see how they've been able to sort of get, you know make it what was a very very small audience for me for you know a decade um, much bigger, and um, you know more readers is always what you're hoping for. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, do you hear? Did you start hearing from more people? Like I'm assuming you started hearing from more readers once your books yeah. showing up in cost. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I get, you know, I get wonderful emails all the time, not daily or anything like that. My inbox is filling up My as inbox we speak. is completely full. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's still a small crowd. It's a still a, a small crowd, relatively speaking. But, you know, um, it, it's it's cool. And, and that means so much, you know, to get feedback from actual people, you know, who are brutally honest usually about how they feel about a book. Um, you know, it's, it's good. And, and it does, you know, I'll be having like a crappy day and thinking, what am I doing? You know, my writing sucks or, you know, whatever. And to get a note saying, you know, this book was really important to me. And I, I found that with Bodies of Water, I've been getting a lot more, a lot more mail than I usually get. Um, it's speaking to people, I think, in, in ways that some of my other novels may not have. Um, and, uh, and so it's been good. What's the difference? Um, I think, well, it's a, it's the story of um, two women um, who are lesbians in the early 60s. And um, I just, I feel like it's, even though it's, you know, 50 years later, um, it, it, it's so topical. Um, it's just something that, you know, it's a story that... I don't think has been written maybe in this way before and, um, and, and that it is kind of a mainstream novel. It's not, you know, it hasn't been sort of pigeonholed as, you know, as a gay novel or anything. And, and so it's, it's been available to the general public and, and promoted to the general public. And, um, and I think people are grateful for that. Do you ever hear the opposite? You ever hear of like really homophobic readers who, send you nasty notes or anything like that? <laughs> you know, I was so worried. I mean, I was so like, oh, my God, you know, am I going to deal with some crazy people because of this? Um, and I have been so incredibly surprised by how little pushback. Um, I did it. My favorite story to tell is I, I, you know, I always look at Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews because I'm, I'm a glutton, you know, for 
for punishment. <laughs> but sure. um, I always look, and um, I had gotten a one-star review on Amazon. And so what I like to do when, you know, somebody gives one star is to see what else they've rated, you know, because you can look, like you can click and see what else they've reviewed. And this one guy was like, this is a bait and switch. I can't believe, you know, if I'd had any idea what, <laughs> what this book was about, I would never have read it. Not that there's anything wrong with it, you know. And it was that kind of a as kind, if, that kind of a comment. As if he just had no choice but to finish the book. You know, what I'm I know, and I'm still, I'm trying to figure out how this guy got his hands on it to begin with. But um, so, uh, so he, um, I went to look at what else he had reviewed, and the only other item he had reviewed was a Tim Tebow jersey, and he gave it five stars. <laughs> So, you know, I, I guess you, it's kind of fun to see, you know, what their where their tastes lie, and 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 it makes it hurt less, you know, when when somebody's I find, hypercritical. Yeah, I find that I find that fascinating because my I mean. <laughs> This is pure speculation, but my gaydar goes off with Tim Tebow. I gotta say, if I'm being really honest with you. So now I'm now I'm like yeah. I'm drawing all these conclusions about the reviewer. You know, if he's like, yeah. he's reading your book, but he's bagging on it, and then he's five starring a Tebow jersey. Like I'm seeing something happening here. Like I think he's. Yeah, I'm not sure. It it it, it could be it could be you know who knows who knows. But yeah, that was that was pretty good. But there was really, I mean, I really the the best feedback that I've gotten from it have been the people who are like, you know, I consider myself conservative or old fashioned, but this is still, I really still love this book, you know, and, and that's what I'd hope for is like, you know, I think that's, and I always say this, but, you know, reading is, is reading and writing both create empathy. And, and if you can put people in shoes that are not necessarily comfortable and make them walk, you know, 200, 300 pages, um, you know, they may gain a little bit of empathy for people that they might, you know, not otherwise want to spend time with. Um, well, and I so feel I like know. I feel like I feel like when it comes to um, you know gay rights issues, like that that is changing so fast. It's been amazing to watch. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. You know, and I think people's people's attitudes are are you know genuinely. I think people are are changing their minds, which is so crazy because you know you think about you know how hard that is to change somebody's mind. And yeah, but it's like, you know, it's like, I think part of it is that when people are in love, it's like, Oh, for, for God's sakes, there's so much to worry about in life. Like this is clearly not yeah. something that we need to spend time on. Like for like good for them. Yeah. You know, like I just, yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like, and I I think too, like once it's more culturally prominent, you know, you see more television shows yeah. and films where these relationships are um, portrayed openly and, and novels, you know, yeah. uh, that can function you know, almost as good as knowing somebody who's gay oh, and yeah. isn't, isn't a relationship. It's no, just normalizing, normalizing, right. you know, and mainstreaming something that, you know, the the farther you push something into a corner, the more um, scary it is, you know. And if it's if it's presented as, you know, this is this is the way people are, this is, you know, this is this is the life um, in, you know, pop culture and and you know the things that are we're constantly being bombarded with you know images that we're being bombarded with if, if that becomes part of the you know what we see then that becomes normalcy and so i agree so where, okay so where did you get the idea for this um i assume you were not a lesbian in the 60s like in your past no i was not a lesbian in the <laughs> 60s um, <laughs> um it actually was inspired by family story um we were actually driving back from vermont um in 2011 which is when hurricane irene hit the east coast and i don't know if you know anything about how it hit vermont it just 
it devastated Vermont. And um, I was actually in Massachusetts uh, with family and my mom and my daughters, and we were on our way back, and we got stranded there. We couldn't leave because the storm was so bad. And um, and my uh, family that we were staying with, we just started, you know, telling stories and, and hanging out and chatting. And um, I come from a family of storytellers, you know, lots and lots of great storytellers in my family. And, um, and uh, my mom's cousin just shared, shared the story about her mom. And, um, and the book is very fictional. It's not, it's not at all, you know, the, the true story, but it was inspired by it. And, um, and I remember, and, you know, she shared it with me and I was like, how do I ask her if I can have this, you know? And, um, and it was the first time that it ever happened to me where somebody sort of told me something where I thought like, I really want that. <laughs> can I please have that? You know? And, um, so I talked to her and I said, I, I think that's the one of the most beautiful love stories I've ever heard. And can I write this? And, and she said, of course, you know, and, and obviously it's I like, said, a, it's, it's like a ready-made it's, it's perfect. It was like the architecture was all there, you know, or most it of was, it was. And, and, you know, and the, it was so wonderful working with her and her sister who just really gave me a lot of the fabulous sort of details because, you know, they grew up during that time period. And so they were able to give me all of these furnishings, you know, to just really paint a vivid portrait of this world. And the, you know, like I said, it was, it was sort of the spark that lit the fire, but, um, the book, definitely went on and became its own, you know, its own entity. It's, it's, it's a, it's very far from the truth, but, um, it started like that. And it was the first time I've ever done that. And it was kind of fun. I mean, it was me. I, I, I sort of think of it as like people who write historical fiction probably have the same thing. You know, you get sort of the, the truths and then you, then you just embellish and expand. And well, I've, I see, I've, I've often said this, that like I envy historical fiction writers for the very fact that they have the plot. Um, yeah. You know, you can feel, yeah. there's a lot of, there's a lot of other hard work that you don't necessarily have yeah. to do in other kinds of fiction writing, but with a historical uh, piece of fiction, like, you know, like I think of like um, Lincoln, you know, the Gore Vidal novel, like it ends, yeah. it ends when Lincoln gets assassinated, you know, the ending. Right, you know, like, right, right. There's and, no messing with that. <laughs> no, but then you, then you have to like go into the library and, you know, really dig in and learn everything you yeah. can learn about which it. is fun, which sure. is fun, you know, and um, it definitely, it, it was one of the few books that I've written that really came easily. It just, the characters popped to life and, you know, spoke and, and everything. And even the language of it and the voice of the character just came really readily. Okay, so um, what, but what about the research? I mean, obviously you were talking to the, these friends of yours and they were giving you a lot of uh, backstory and details and stuff, but, like, how much research did you have to do and when did you know that you were ready to write? You know, like... Do, do, yeah, do, not tons. I mean, I got, the, I got this, the, the storm hit um, end of August, um, right before Labor Day weekend, um, I came home, I thought about it, um, took notes, you know, talked to, talked to them both. And, um, and then I started November one with, uh, NaNoWriMo and wrote it wow. in the month of November. Did you have, um, did you have access to diaries or anything like personal materials? No, no, no um, no, I just, just their memories. And, um, you know, it's set, uh, conveniently in, in, Massachusetts and Vermont, so the geographically, I didn't need to do any research. A lot of my novels share setting, um, which is a fictional 
version of um, the place that we go in Vermont. And so it part of it takes place there. So that terrain for me, even though it's fictional, is like home. You know, it's very, very familiar. And um, so I didn't have to do anything with regards to that. Some historical stuff, but, you know, this is my parents' era. They were, you know, they were teenagers in the 60s. So um, any any questions I had about, you know, culture and, and stuff like that, I, I could talk to them about. Um, my mom read it in the early phase and, you know, gave, gave feedback and, and things about the time. And my dad's always good at giving me, you know, like music and that's know, in, that's interesting. That. Your mom read an early draft, so your mom's one of yeah. your. Is that normal? Are your parents early readers of yours? Sometimes, sometimes you know. I was just talking about this with my husband the other day. Like, um, I like my, I have a book called Grace that um, I think you know. You know Jim Rollins? Yeah, sure. Yeah, he uh, he's a friend of mine from graduate school, and um, he and another guy, Rich Farrell, and I um, had a writing group while I was writing this book, Grace. So I had like constant feedback, you know, as I was writing it, which was a little weird because, you know, I kind of normally just sort sort of go off on myself, write the draft, and then share it. And so that was a different experience. And then Bodies of Water, uh, I was I sort of wrote it by myself, but then I got a lot of readers. I had you know my family reading it. Um, and then, like, the book that's coming out next year, nobody's read it except for my agent and my editor. You feel so, good about, do you feel good about that? I don't know. I'm really scared. That's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's, know, a, that's I, always an interesting question is how, you know, how close to the vest do you keep it? Because too many cooks in the yeah. kitchen, too many cooks in the kitchen yeah. can spoil the broth. But if you're too close to the vest, you can be too insular and you can... Um, yeah. You can miss things. And I've know? done it always. I've done it always. You know, I've done it where I'm sharing paragraph by paragraph, and I've done it where, like, this time, I mean, seriously, I just, on Sunday night, sent off what will be the final thing, you know, um, to my editor who had seen it twice. But, you know, and we've worked together now for, you know, five years. So I, I trust him, and, and he's a good editor, and, and, and you know, that we have a great relationship, and I and he keeps telling me it's good, but there's, like, the more people you telling you that it's okay and it's good, you know, kind of the better. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it is a little weird doing it without a lot of feedback. I think that, yeah, I, I, need, I, I, I tend need to, people I, to... I need, you know, the, the Tebow guy to tell me it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need, I, yeah, I want Tim Tebow to bless my novel. That's what I want him to do. I do, I do. Uh, but, no, but I think, I be, I'm a believer in group mind. Like, I think it's got to be the right group, but I think, you, you know... Yeah. I mean... The, yep. And that was the thing with Jim and Rich, you know, like, they were the perfect audience for me at that time for that book, and so it worked. I don't know that it would have worked with any other two people, you know? But, and this is, um, an, this is an interesting question, because you say Jim and Rich, two, two guys. Um, yeah. Obviously, you know, books can and should cross genders, but it seems right. like a lot of books written by guys are sort of like, quote-unquote, four guys, and a lot of books written by women are maybe more easily um, read by women or related to by women for just, like, basic right. basic reasons, like... You you have a male editor. You have two dudes in your writing group reading you. Like, do you feel like my agent's a guy too? Yeah, yeah. So what's the deal there? Oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'm maybe I'm sort of bucking that idea by the people I choose to have read my work. You know, I don't know. I I mean, I do have I have female writer friends who also give feedback, but it seems like the last few books I've had mostly male readers who are helping me along the way. Um, I think it has more to do with me. I don't know. I don't consider my books books for women at all. And um, this book happens to be about two women, but um, you know, my 
my book, Grace, that came out before that was uh, about a family, and there's you know two male characters that carried the bulk of the story. So um, I don't know. Maybe yeah, maybe I'm resisting that idea by. Well, but having... it, it makes sense that this makes even deeper sense to me because like I think group mind tends to be better than like the mind of the individual. Like it's good to get feedback right. and to have multiple perspectives on something before you make like oh, yeah. big, big decisions. But then. I think like included in that should be like group mind should include people of different uh, genders and backgrounds. Yeah. Maybe that would maybe yeah. that would yeah. deliver even like more wisdom somehow. Yeah. You know, I, I, I lead to um, reading critique groups through San Diego Writer Thank here um, and, you know, that meet weekly and um, it's the most eclectic mix of people. You know, it's, fabulous because there are men, there are women, there are younger people, there are older people, there are people with no education with, with regards to writing, people who have just started and people who are, you know, getting published. And so it's, um, and it, the dynamics, I have one group that's been meeting for over a year now and it's fabulous. I mean, they help each other because it's a wide representation of like, it's like a little microcosm of like actual readership, you know? Uh, right. And um, it, it doesn't, it, it doesn't screw things up. Like that's not like a situation where it gets too confusing because you have like, it's actually good. Like the feedback cumulatively yeah, yeah. Wor- works well for people. Yeah. And if it doesn't, then the people leave, you know what I mean? It's, yeah. and I think what's happened over the course of a year is that it's really solidified. I have eight people and it's solidified into this really terrific functioning group. Oh, and they all, they write in different genres too, which is even crazier. You know, I have, that's good too. That's another deeper level, you know, cross pollination between like genre and literary and all that kind of stuff. I think they can inform one another. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Well, cool. Well, uh, it's been really fun talking with you. I wish we could keep going, but the hour's up. The hour's up. The hour's up. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh I congratulate you on uh you know the latest book and then the one that just is about to go off to uh the publisher. What's the next one called? Can you say? Uh, yeah, we're working on the title. I think it's going to be called The Forever Bridge. Okay. Well, for now. All right. <laughs> or or it could be like The Temporary Bridge, depending on. It could be The Temporary Bridge. <laughs> you know, we've tried pretty much every title that has bridge in it. It was called Here is the Bridge, but they're not a fan of that. Um, that was what I wanted to call it. But, um, what about just bridge? Like, well, yeah, my husband said, how about the bridge? I was like, that sounds so boring now. I think it's going to be the forever bridge. The forever, okay. Got to have a bridge in the title now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I'm seeing like a bridge in clouds, but that's, you know, that's easy. Maybe. <laughs> oh, uh, man. Okay. Well, good luck with it all. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks for talking to me. All right, you guys, there you have it. That's T. Greenwood. Go get her book. It's called Bodies of Water. It's out there now from Kensington. You can find uh, Tammy online at tgreenwood.com. She's on Twitter, where her handle is at tgwood505. Uh, and she's also on the Facebook uh, and Pinterest, if you are uh, interested in Pinterest. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the good music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to go get that app. Sign up for premium. Support the show. Uh, don't forget to read the latest high-quality content over at other people, uh, otherppl.com, otherppl.com. And, hey, if uh, you're listening to this on the, uh, the day that the show airs, April 9th, 2014, uh, please note that tomorrow, April 10th, 2014, right here in Los Angeles, uh, over at the Bootleg Theater, the Nervous Breakdown, the Rumpus, and the Hot Dish Reading Series 
are throwing an off-site party to help kick off the L.A. Times Festival of Books weekend. Uh, the event is called Nerdy, Wordy, and Dirty. Nerdy, Wordy, and Dirty. Showtime is 8 p.m. Uh, once again, that's at the Bootleg Theater, 2220 Beverly Boulevard. There's going to be readings uh, by Jerry Stahl, Gina Frangello, Dana Johnson, XTX. Uh, there will be a comedy performance by Ted Travelstead. And uh, there will be music by DJ Mira Gonzalez. <laughs> Her DJ debut. So if you're in Los Angeles, California, tomorrow, April 10th, and you would like to come down to the show and hang out, we'd love to see you. It's seven bucks at the door. Please bring friends. And uh, please remember that Samuel Johnson died of dropsy and that Somerset Mom was often referred to by his friends as Willie. That's it for now. Thanks once again to T. Greenwood. Go get her novels. And thanks again uh, to you, you kind people for giving me your kind attention. I'll be back in just a few days. You know the drill. I'll be back in just a few days with more conversation uh, with another uh, writerly person, more high-quality content. And, uh, you know, I'm presuming, of course, that the quality is going to be high. And I, I guarantee you that I will be stressing about the quality of the content just for you. And let's face it, you want me to stress. You need me to stress. <laughs> it's good. You know, it's positive. The fact that I'm a deranged insomniac uh, means that I care. What time is it right now? 